Welcome to another episode of Breakthrough Science with Prime Movers Lab. Join venture capital firm Prime Movers Lab as we dive deep into the most exciting advances in breakthrough science and technology with the founders, researchers, and prime movers who are working to transform billions of lives. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining our webinar on ocean energy technologies. Um, my name is Josh Agenbrod, and I'm a partner at Prime Movers Lab, focused on energy and climate-related investments. Uh, Prime Movers Lab is a deep tech venture capital firm investing in entrepreneurs and breakthrough science with the potential to impact billions of lives around the world. Uh, we're focused right now on six areas where we think deep tech innovation can have the biggest impact. And those are transportation, agriculture, manufacturing, infrastructure, human augmentation, and energy. And so within that last category, um, that's obviously the focus today, uh, we've, been we've become very interested in ocean, en ocean energy. Uh, and we were lucky to find Nicholas and have him join the team about three months ago and kind of lead, uh, lead some research into this area. Uh, studying the current landscape, the status of technologies, policy trends, challenges, and opportunities uh, for ocean energy. We've interviewed many of the leading startups and experts from universities and government labs and test facilities, and we're lucky to have a really sort of interesting variety of those experts joining us today for the webinar. So thanks again for joining them, and I'm really excited to, to be a part of the discussion. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to hand it over to Nicholas to introduce himself and kick things off. Before I do that, I just want to take a moment to frame things up uh, a little bit how we got interested in this topic to begin with. So if I get some things up, I think the two questions we've been trying to answer are sort of what if ocean energy could be harvested as easily as solar or wind power and is now the time for us to diversify our renewable portfolio? And so like, if you think about the ocean, uh, there's just an enormous amount of energy, right? Like tides, if you think about tides, the volume of water involved in those flows, uh, or if you've ever gone swimming in the ocean and been hit by a big wave, it's clear that the ocean contains just a lot of energy. And in fact, it's estimated that harvesting that energy in coastal areas, there could be more than enough uh, power or enough energy electricity generated to power all of global uh, electricity demand. Um, but comparing with solar and wind, obviously, um, you know, there's a big difference today. Uh, if you think about the enormous impact that solar and PV, solar PV and wind power have had in the world, it's kind of easy to forget that just two years ago, um, the, or, sorry, not two years ago, uh, 20 years ago, sort of within my career, these technologies were 10 times as expensive as they are today. Uh, and if you looked at a pie chart of global energy supply, they really wouldn't even show up. Um, but there were those who saw the potential for these technologies at that time. Uh, they started developing them into products, making them available for more widespread use, uh, improving the reliability, improving safety, reducing the cost. There were, um, there were policy uh, makers who developed incentives to support early adopters and then project developers who, who sort of got out there and started deploying capital, had to figure out those incentives and, and tax structures to, to make it work. And, Eventually, we got into this virtuous cycle where uh, economies of scale began re reducing the cost of these technologies, allowing more learning, further improvement of the products, 
uh, and reducing cost. And then that cost led to additional demand uh, and that additional demand led to further economies of scale. So it's this virtuous cycle. And uh, today we're lucky to have a group working at sort of part of the early, at sort of the early part of that journey for a new set of technologies. Uh, so I'm excited to, to um, discuss today uh, ocean energy in, in that context and maybe catch a glimpse of what the future might look like uh, as we add some sort of new tools into the toolbox of uh, decarbonizing our electricity system. So with that, let me hand it over to Nicholas to introduce himself and uh, to kick things off. Yeah, great. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate that. So my name is Nicholas Mayveris. I am a mechanical engineering graduate student at MIT, and I'm currently an Ocean Fellow here at Primrose Lab. And so as brief agenda, what we'll be going through today, for us, we'll um, definitely hear from the panelists. They'll give a brief introduction of themselves. Then we'll have three minutes of questions and a conversation regarding ocean energy. And finally, if you have any questions throughout the conversation, feel free to put those in the chat. We'll be happy to answer those um, in the last five or 10 minutes or so. And so with that, I'd like to get started in introducing our panelists. And so I guess, Anthony, would you like to start introducing yourself? Sure thing. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Anthony Damari, CEO and co-founder of Bedrock Ocean Exploration. We're building vertically integrated, uh, hyper-efficient ways to collect data, particularly geophysical data, about the seafloor itself. So think about sort of the shape, uh, the composition, uh, any of the geologic elements or ferrous elements that may impact your ability to do things on the seafloor. We've built robotics and cloud software to allow that to be uh, very efficient. Background in mechanical engineering, uh, naval architecture. This is my second startup. Uh, excited to be here. Amazing, thank you, Anthony. Uh, Beth, I'd like to hand it over to you now. Great, thanks. Hi everyone, Beth Hartman, Program Manager for Strategic Innovation and Outreach in the Water Power Technologies Office at the Department of Energy. Um, previously to joining the Department of Energy, I was at Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, for almost five years where I focused on innovation in electricity and policy. Um, and before that, I was at APRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, where I helped build a clean energy incubator network in partnership with the DOE and NREL. So I have a lot of experience in um, technology innovation and commercialization in energy generally. So um, at the Department of Energy, the Water Power Technologies Office sits under the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, along with the wind, solar, and geothermal offices. So just to give you sort of a picture of where we sit, um, and we focus on both hydropower and marine energy. So anything to do with energy and water, obviously today we are focused on the marine energy side of things. So I'm excited to get into the discussion. Awesome, thank you very much. Uh, Marcus, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone, Mark Seaman, co-founder CEO of CalWave Power Technologies. We're a San Francisco Bay Area based technology developer. Um, yeah, our vision is really to unlock the power of ocean waves and mission to become the provider of most reliable and cost-effective solution to harness um, yeah, that enormous amount of power. Um, we had a yeah, um, successful trial in 21-22, um, yeah, 10 months continuous deployment in Southern California and San Diego, and are now working on a longer two-year pilot in Oregon at the new 20-megawatt wave farm funded by the DOE. We are really excited to dive into the session. Awesome. Thank you, Marcus. Um, and last but not least, Anders, would you like to introduce yourself? 
Thanks, yeah, Anders Johnson. I'm head of business development at Core Power. We are a Swedish headquartered uh, wave energy company. We are turnkey OEM uh, to deliver wave energy technologies. Um, we've been developing this since 2012 when the sort of primary inventor who was a cardiologist saw that the pneumatic pretension in the heart could be used in, uh, in wave energy technology, which was kind of a step change on how you could radically change your ability to be in or out of phase with the incoming waves. Um, and we've since then been pushing this technology. We're now about 80 employees, we raised closer to 70 million dollars. And we are what we call in that final stage of demonstrating the technology to bring it to a bankable technology, enabling project developers to start building you know, hundreds of megawatts of, of this type of technology. Uh, I've been in the sector since 2006, uh, co-founded a title ended company, uh, which we put on the first North NASDAQ stock exchange in Stockholm in 2015. And then uh, I moved into wave energy and core power because I, I believe that we have sort of cracked the code of both being able to survive the big storms and at the same time be able to produce cost-efficient electricity that can compete head-to-head -head with any other type of uh, of uh, energy production. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, Andrews. And so with that, I'd like to start getting to some of the questions. And so I think I want to start a little broad and kind of as Josh was referring to, wind and solar have definitely decreased over the past 20 years in cost. So I want to kind of discuss and get your opinion on why, why marine energy, why is marine energy important now? Why do we need wave, in, for example, waves in tidal? And how can it complement some other renewable energy sources? And so I'd like to kind of open the floor to anyone who would like to start. Maybe I, I can start on that since coming, you know, both from, from wave and, and tidal sectors. I think, first of all, why is it needed? Uh, when we look at where we are now, we can see that we can certainly produce the amount of electricity that we need with solar and wind, but that is not the challenge anymore. It's about producing 24-7 reliable energy. And tidal is you know, really predictable. We can set the clock after the tides and we know that you know, 100 years in advance almost, but it is intermittent, but predictable. Whereas wave is a way of, of storing wind into the ocean and you can have several weather windows out in the ocean uh, where the wind gets accumulated into the waves and those waves hit the, the power production differently to the wind. So you have a very complementary production profile, which in a way you can say it's a, you know, the largest storage unit on, on the planet. So this complementary effect then means that we can reduce the total installed capacity needed. And at the same time, then reduce the total cost of, of the energy system. So I think that's the sort of primary reason why we need wave and, and tidal. Yeah, um, I'll echo that, Anders. Thanks. That was a very good overview. And then um, also just kind of reinforcing the points that Josh made earlier. You know, solar and wind used to be very expensive, but then the more you build, the better we get at it through learning curves and economies of scale. So these solutions can scale and become cost effective. And I think it's a really exciting opportunity right now to learn more about it um, and get into the, the ocean energy space. Another um, great thing about ocean energy, aside from helping to you know, balance out other sources of clean energy on the grid and the enormous potential amount of energy in the ocean um, is that it's near a lot of people. You know, A lot of people live near 
the, the ocean on the coasts in big cities or in small remote communities. And so um, it, can, it can add a lot of energy into the mix for many, many people around the world. Yeah, maybe complementing that, um, us being here in, in California, um, where we have the um, duck curve. So the big challenge of Senshi Solar coming offline in the evening, a lot of people coming home, turning on their lights, now charging their EVs. Um, so that big problem of yeah, um, bridging the daily, but then also the seasonal gap of production. Um, yeah, they've considered um, turning, I think, the Hoover Dam here into pumped storage, which would solve the problem by, I think, a, a tiny margin. So um, what a lot of people don't know that the electric grid, you know, you say, yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. But if you don't actually look into the numbers of how much storage it would take to fully decarbonize the, the grid, these are like large zeros, so three, four zeros, uh, multiple behind the, the storage we have today. And so the, the, the more renewables we put on the grid, the harder that problem becomes. And I think it's great to see wind and solar progressing so fast, but there will be its limitations. In California, I think you cannot install solar without storage anymore by mandate. And so, yeah, exactly that stability is one big feature. Another big element and in the International Panel on Climate Change pointed it out is from a total life cycle emissions perspective, just working with a resource that is 20 to 60 times more energy dense ultimately leads to the lowest source of clean energy from a life cycle emissions perspective. So the IPCC really has forecasted that. Um, so yeah, the amount of space we need, for example, compared to an offshore wind farm to get to the same rated power is in the order of, you know, only five to 10%. And um, so as space becomes limited, working with a yeah, energy dense um, resource is really attractive as well next to the, yeah, we get it delivered to our front doors here um, and, and no uh, long transmission lines from the center of the country to the coastlines where think the status always 50% of the US population lives within 50 miles of um, the coastlines. So yeah, that's where also majority of migration is towards the, the economic centers and trade centers on the coasts. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Pump Storage Hydro. Since you mentioned it, Marcus, I know we're focused on marine energy, but a lot of people don't know that over 90% of the storage on the US grid currently is provided by Pump Storage Hydro. So batteries get all the attention, but Everyone forgets about water power. So I'm just really excited we're talking about it. I, I think it's an important point when you start looking at marine energies. It's, it has been spent fairly little money into this sector. Uh, and I think we're now getting into maybe third or, or second or third generation of type of technologies. And historically, what we have seen is that either you know, technologies have broken down in, in the big storms or they just haven't been cost efficient. But what we see now is when we start looking at the structural efficiency, meaning how much material is needed to produce a certain amount of, of electricity, we are now at the level of uh, offshore wind already in, in early generations of, of wave. So if we can produce even more energy, but with less material, that means that the cost levels are coming down quite fast. So I think that, that there is a big step change in the maturity of the technology that we see today compared to what maybe we saw 10 years ago. Uh, and, and that is the, the biggest reason why marine energy is getting, getting really, really excited and we can see more and more actors getting involved into it. I have also something to add that I think is 
sort of tangential and overarching um, across all of the renewable energy sectors, but particularly in the marine energy space is, as Beth was saying, the vast majority of the demand is very close to shore. And the grids that we have set up on land are meant to be able to turn on a coal power plant when you need more energy and turn it off when it's not there. Um, in many ways, we need to create, um, at least what we're seeing is on top of the ability to create redundant grid systems on the seafloor that connect different areas, allow balancing of grid and electricity between different coastal areas. Um, for example, the UK is creating a completely redundant grid system all around the entirety of the UK to be able to trade energy between different areas. That will need to be supplemented with offshore wind, which is sort of the predominant um, you know, ocean renewable that we're seeing today, but mainly because of its maturity. But then subsequently, we don't have the capacity to store all of this energy and meet that sort of the, the demands that we're seeing. So from, from at least the seafloor only perspective, there's a ton of infrastructure that needs to be built, solve some of the sort of grid balancing problems, and all of that has the opportunity to sort of interface with all these new technologies in a completely novel way where you don't have to, uh, you don't have to maintain the old infrastructure. You actually just get to build the infrastructure that you otherwise would have wanted to do in the first place. So that's exciting from our end as well. So thank you everyone for those great insights. I appreciate it. So now I guess, we have like why now it's definitely important, but also I want to get into a little bit more about the technologies. So I just want to discuss what is the current status and also what some applications of these technologies. And so let me, I guess, premise that. So there is research being done like um, remote communities or island communities, as well as grid scale. And then also this idea of the blue economy where powering devices at sea, where these sensors. And so I just want to get your insights about what do you see as some possible applications? And then also specifically, what technologies are you developing that could enable those applications? Yeah, I'm happy to, to jump in here. Um, so I think one of the exciting, another exciting thing about ocean energy, in addition to its enormous potential to generate electricity, is that there are other applications that are very useful, like desalination, um, ocean observation, aquaculture, marine carbon dioxide removal. Um, and so we have uh, seen these solutions work. We had um, a prize opportunity called the Waves to Water Prize that demonstrated that wave energy devices can produce fresh water. Um, so it's kind of a fun uh, thing to do to, to use the water to produce fresh water. Um, we also um, have worked in the past with a company called Ebb Carbon doing some research out with the Pacific Northwest National Lab and NOAA. And I saw that they recently raised $20 million um, for marine carbon dioxide removal, which I think is pretty exciting. Um, and then another thing I'll just give a little shout out to is that if you do want to um, test a wave energy device for generating electrons um, in a commercial way, we are going to be opening a facility very soon called PacWave, which is up in the Pacific Northwest. And it is a pre-permitted site for wave energy technologies to test their devices um, in the water, connect them up to a big cable that connects to the grid. And so just felt like I had to give a shout out to that. And I know that uh, Marcus, you're very familiar with our work there. And maybe to, happy to directly follow up on that. Yeah, we're um, very familiar with the side. We've um, been 
designing for PuckWave since 2019 under a DOE award we've won there. Initially, our technology comes out of UC Berkeley and the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. We got support there from a program called Cycleton Road or now Activate. And um, our solution operates fully submerged and that allows us to really meet the same criteria from a fundamental architecture perspective as the modern wind turbine being high performance and ability to autonomously shut down in storms. So the wind industry really became industrially scalable when pitch and yaw control was introduced. So the ability of wind turbines to really shut off um, by themselves. And so yeah, being submerged allows us really to mitigate loads um, in big storms and that keeps the capex low, all the um, pretty large loads you would get from the 50 year storm for for offshore wind or any offshore structure you have to design um, for the 50 year return wave because that's what the, the banks and insurances want to see. And so, um, yeah, of course, you want to be careful that that wave doesn't become your cost driver, but barely contributes to um, your average um, energy production throughout the year. So that's really a challenge that the industry was facing so far. And yeah, new technologies um, coming to market now really have addressed that. And then we went through a nationwide competition called the U.S. Wave Energy Prize, um, hosted by the DOE and um, yeah, the national labs, and did extremely well there. Out of 92 teams, um, yeah, um, made it to the um, top um, nine companies that were tested um, by third parties. So it was really the first time that, in a standard um, testing environment or standardized conditions, a third party recorded performance, and yeah our solution then achieved the highest performance there. And as a follow on um, to that prize, uh, first and second scoring um, companies yeah, won awards to do an open ocean pilot. So we've conducted that then in San Diego last year for 10 months. Yes, I've been out for um, initial target was six months, but yeah, we had zero downtime, zero intervention. So we extended the deployment to 10 months and yeah, we're operating fully autonomous um, for nine out of 10 months. So really demonstrated uh, from performance to reliability and survivability, and especially the, the autonomy enables us then also to scale and similar to offshore wind. I think it's, I mean, the, the wave energy sector in particular has been very diversified when it comes to types of technology. Technologies. And I know that has been one of the big challenges for investors to know, you know, well, what should we go? I have 50 different types of technologies. Which one should I should I pick? I think we're seeing more and more merger to these type of point absorbers, which I think is good. Um, and, and when you start looking at the application and the different verticals, there will be, I think, a number of different applications. So you have the smaller scale with smaller electricity needs sensors, subsea, um, aquaculture, et cetera, but you also have the utility scale. I think that's where we see most of the interest now is the drivers behind getting to 24-7 renewable on an hourly matching. So, you know, we have a number of big data companies saying that, you know, we want to match the electricity production with our consumption every minute uh, all over the year, but we also see some industrial companies who drive that as their sustainability sort of target, um, which is where wave energy really can play a significant role. So we've done studies for a big hydrogen facility, for a green steel facility using hydrogen, and we could decrease their installed capacity with approximately 46%. So going from about eight gigawatts of installed capacity with solar and wind 
to 4.4 or 4.5 gigawatts of installed capacity, which is massive. And still, even though that was an MP, MPV calculation, and they picked about, up about a gigawatt of, of wave because we are twice the price in 2030 than onshore wind and solar. Um, it really tells you how important those different production profiles are and how massive impact it has on the overall energy system. So I think there will be yeah, a variety of applications, but basically it comes down to, we need electricity at all times. It's very hard to, to shut down. And that's where, where marine energy will, will play an important role in the future. I probably have one more also fairly macro state that I, I'm not a, expert in any particular singular uh, energy source, but I can tell you from what we're seeing on the um, different nations or island states or countries that are looking to understand where they could be deploying renewable energy in general around the ocean, which is sort of where we come into the picture. We're seeing everything from the smallest islands who want energy independence all the way up to the largest nation states who, you know, control the world. And so no matter who they are um, or where they are, there is a very clear desire to understand where they should be allowing companies to deploy this energy just because of the cost profile and how, in, frankly, how much easier it is to deploy in comparison to some of the more um, uh, land-based solutions where they may not even have the ability to do it in some cases. So we're seeing up and down the spectrum of size of demand from just trying to figure out where and how they should be looking at things, you know, power to X in general is a really exciting concept. Um, for those that don't know, power to X is you generate electricity and you do other things with the excess electricity, whether it's hydrogen projection or desalination or all, it's all sorts of different things you can do. Um, so this, this is all very exciting uh, from our perspective. And I think yeah, the latest COP um, was also picked up that yeah, the industrialized nations now putting a large fund together for the uh, small island development states to become energy independent, reduce their carbon footprint. Um, yes, along these lines, there, there's a UN initiative called Go Carbon Free 24-7 um, that we just joined, yeah, exactly highlighting the, the need there for the 24-7 and nature of it. Um, and um, yeah, it's already um, good progress, but it shows up on the, on the later end. And of course, we wanted to accelerate the adoptions early on um, with the low-hanging fruits. But I think as we progress with more renewables on the grid, um, that's where the stable ones really start to um, stand out and be critical. Exactly. Awesome. Thank you very much. And I kind of, I guess, Kind of going back, I guess, Anthony, because your company is kind of, I see as a kind of a key enabler of all these technologies, wave, tile, even offshore wind. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how your, I guess, more specifically, how your technology could accelerate this industry or other um, industries in, entirely. Yeah, so one of, one of the big challenges, regardless if you're doing wave, uh, tidal, offshore wind, regardless of whatever infrastructure project you're trying to actually make happen, um, or possible out in the ocean is you kind of have to understand what the geophysics of the seafloor are. You usually have to anchor them to the ground somehow. Um, and you almost always, uh, at least to my knowledge, have to run a cable back to some grid in some way, shape or form. Oftentimes you'll have arrays of cables 
that connect different parts um, of different parts of the renewable farm or I'm assuming different parts of the wave energy system, that all comes back to some very large substation, um, which is a very, very large piece of infrastructure that you have to sort of, again, you have to plan for the 50 year storm. So being able to have access to as much seafloor information and particularly geophysical seafloor information, um, anything that you could use to imagine building a foundation in a dynamic environment that is always changing with tons of current, um, it, the way it's done right now is with very large ships. Um, it's usually procured after the fact um, of a lot of capital being deployed, um, for better or worse. And so what we're trying to do is move that data into the hands of people much earlier at a different cost structure um, over larger periods of, uh, or larger areas uh, in much less um, time as well as cost. For individual contributors. Um, in other words, don't put all of the risk on just the developer, help spread that out across different parts of the value chain. Um, everybody's trying to assess risk um, of when they think about how they should be deploying their resources. Um, are they being appropriately designed? Are we looking at the ROI of these projects correctly? Are we doing power purchase agreements uh, at the correct time, at the correct price? Um, what is the ultimate LCOE, which is driven by the ultimate construction cost and then maintenance of those projects over long periods of time? All of that requires seafloor data, you know, surveys or monitoring, whichever you'd like to call it. Um, but either way, we need to find much more scalable ways to do that right now. And so what we're trying to do is get ahead of a lot of these different technologies and where we think they're going to happen and be able to actually go out, have that data already on hand, and then be able to provide that um, to different companies at a dramatically reduced price um, in much faster, uh, in a much faster period of time. And so that's one of the bottlenecks right now for being able to actually develop things quickly um, is for better or worse. Uh, there are requirements, either it's from governments, environmental, uh, regulations, uh, all sorts of different things that require a deep understanding of what's actually going on. And I generally think that's a wonderful thing and we should be doing that. However, the ways that we've been doing it in the past just don't really scale as effectively. And as we're thinking through the massive amount of area that is now needing to be surveyed because we've got offshore wind, we've got wave power, we've got tidal coming in, we have all sorts of different uh, uh, grid HTBC lines that need to get put in place. Um, we're finding that the amount of area that needs to be covered within the exact same year is growing exponentially. And it's much, we can't grow our survey fleet that quickly. And so we need to find supplemental ways to provide that data. And ideally it's done in a, in a more economic and environmentally friendly way. And so that's mainly what we're trying to do here at Bedrock. But we're just the ones that say, listen, you you would never go buy a property or a house without doing a survey of it beforehand. We're the survey. They're the ones that actually are doing the construction and help sort of make uh, the renewable energy itself happen. Um, so we're not, we sort of are, we're a supplemental uh, both enabler and monitoring service long-term as we think through how to maintain these assets over 30 to 50 years. No, thank you for sharing that, Anthony. And kind of going off of what resources are needed, so we definitely need data. And also, I want to kind of get into more of the governmental, the policy side of things. And so I guess what my question is, is what government support is needed or do you feel is needed to accelerate the marine energy industry? And so 
there was an Inflation Reduction Act as well as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So that's one thing I guess, Beth, you probably have a lot of familiarity with this. Could you probably, could you provide some insight of like what advice do you, would you provide companies regarding these or, or other policies that are being developed? Yes, certainly. Excellent, um, thank you. So <laughs> um, there certainly was already plenty of government support, not plenty, but government support available for wave and tidal energy before um, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law were passed, our two favorites, Uncle Ira and Uncle Bill certainly did increase um, the amount of support that is available. Uh, guidance from Treasury is still continuing to come out in terms of specifics on how you can take advantage of the um, production tax credit, the investment tax credit. There's a lot of uh, additional bonus money you can get for domestic content and prevailing wage. So basically, if you do projects using stuff built in the US with US workers who are getting paid well, you get more credits. Um, and we have a whole web page on our website outlining um, the different types of credits that might be available for hydro and marine energy. So just energy.gov slash water, or you can Google like Inflation Reduction Act opportunities for hydro and marine. Um, please check it out. And then on the bipartisan infrastructure law side, we just released a funding opportunity a couple of weeks ago that is $45 million funding opportunity for tidal energy, tidal and current energy solutions, um, which is the largest funding opportunity that we have ever released in the marine energy side of the Water Power Technologies Office. It is um, designed to encourage uh, you know, construction of tidal energy projects here in the US. Um, those already are working in many places around the world. I think um, some examples have already been mentioned like Orbital up in Scotland. And so we would love to see some deployments uh, happening here in our country. Um, and I guess if I had uh, my, my top tips for if you wanted to apply to a funding opportunity like that would be to start now. It's kind of a long arduous process and then think about who you might need to partner with. Um, the opportunity is open to non-US entities, but you do have to partner with the US organization as the lead on that. So um, get started now and think about who you want to partner with. There is a ton of money available and it just seems like more and more guidance is coming out every day. I know we've already mentioned hydrogen a few times, but there's going to be more guidance coming out on the hydrogen production tax credit and who qualifies for that. So um, stay tuned and get moving as fast as you can on whatever is clear. Amazing. Thank you for that advice, Beth. And I kind of want to open up to any kind of open up this question is kind of for anyone, I guess, what are the biggest challenges of marine energy? So we talked about some um, definitely harsh conditions, but what are some other challenges that you would see within this sector, both technical, but also just societal or governmental? And also, more, I guess, also importantly, how are you working to overcome those challenges within your organization or company, things like that? I can probably. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Feel free. All right. Well, looking at how you know, to develop new energy technologies, I, I use you know, bending it twice now. I, I say it, it, it takes about 10 years and costs at least $100 million uh, to, to do it to get from you know original idea until you have a bankable product and, and, and creating revenue. Um, 
So if we talk about the, the typical value of debt, it's, it's quite long for these type of companies. And that's where governmental support becomes crucial to sort of balance that risk for the early stage investors. Um, and then you get into building the first projects and, and then you're getting into the challenges of, of bankability, insurance, uh, warranty. Uh, and that's also where we are working quite a lot with, with different governments to sort of look at different type of warranty funds um, uh, where they could potentially underwrite or give support to underwriters for, for the projects. So we have, for example, the European Investment Bank, uh, we have a Swedish export credit uh, that we can use uh, there to, to sort of lay the puzzle on how you fund the first projects to get going. So that, that's, I think, is, is probably our biggest challenge at the moment, uh, is to get through that in a reasonable timeline so we can start building the projects and, and create revenue to, to the company. Um, so that, that's on the commercial side. And then when you get into technologies, it's obviously, you know, time in the water is what counts. That's how you decrease the risk. That's how you get insurance companies to, to feel comfortable with you and, and go through all the certifications, uh, uh, which is uh, something that engineers tend to really enjoy is to go through those hundreds of documents and write down everything they do and, and why they do it and how to do it and ensure that following all the, the standards but it's needed and, and I think that's also a big shift in this sector where it's no longer naive and thinking that as long as you just have a good technology you can sell it it's actually about you know you need to convince the banks by the end of the day that's who you need to convince uh so you can create uh, a market for yourself and the only way to do that is to, to decrease the risk so i was actually going to pose a question to both anders and marcus here of have either of you had experiences around trying to submit you know a cop or a concept of operations plan to the bureau of ocean energy management have is that and that's a US-based um, entity, of course. So that's that's not a globally based, but have what has that have you been through that experience? I, from my understanding, it's um it, it takes quite a large team to get those built and just even submitted, let alone approved. Um, so I'd be curious to know what you guys think. We're just one supplemental data source that is added into those if it exists. Um, so but I know that from what I've heard that they can be they can just take a while and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is, I think, understaffed right now and is swamped with all these projects and, you know, they're moving as fast as they can. But that's one side that I've I've seen. I'm just curious what you guys have experienced trying to get government approval to deploy even test units. Yeah, happy to comment from a U.S. developer perspective. Well, our deployment in San Diego, it wasn't a commercial deployment, it was a demonstration and we collaborated with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography there, UC San Diego, where initially we were coming out of the UC system, that's when we actually started the collaboration there. Yeah, so we needed nine different permits um, to deploy there and, and recover everything at the end. Um, but yet there wasn't a BOEM specific permit, I think BOEM comes in, in federal waters. So for offshore winds, a lot of the lease areas are being um, yeah, sold off, auctioned off by Bowen. And um, with PacWave also being fully pre-permitted, that actually takes off a big burden on our end that you know we don't want to become a project developer. We want to become an OEM, provide the equipment to project developers that have that expertise. They know um, 
yeah, how to source the project financing. That's really their core bread and butter. The big, um, you know, offshore wind project developers, they usually buy the wind turbines. So similar, uh, we want to become the provider of the, the wave equipment. Um, and so the, our hope is that, yeah, BOEM um, yeah, will also incorporate other sources of marine energy into the, the umbrella um, leases for offshore wind. So we're seeing now um, the White House actually just published the uh, um, action ocean climate action plan that includes offshore wind and wave and tidal. So I think, um, and yeah, similar trade associations that used to solely focus on offshore wind are now widening their horizon, um, adding uh, other marine renewables um, or ocean energy um, to that. And so yeah, our hope is that we can leverage existing permits, um, existing projects, even um, down to the existing infrastructure, even the cables and substations of an offshore wind farm that have access capacity and can complement that with wave going forward. Um, so that's a way to um, accelerate market adoption um, there with yeah, industries that are already up and running. I wanted to give a, a further shout out to that White House Ocean Climate Action Plan. I think it's a really good plan. We should take a look at it and it's, um, grouped into the three key buckets, which is not only producing more clean and electrons, but also removing carbon dioxide from the system and using potentially marine carbon dioxide removal, and then increasing resilience for communities that will be impacted the most severely by increasingly severe impacts of the climate crisis. So check it out. The question is, is, is hugely important. And I, I, I doubt developed commercial projects in, in the UK and it's a uh, uh, it's quite a bureaucratic process but in the UK they have a process so you know what you need to do uh, which is good but it takes a long time it takes about 10 years to develop a project which is not preferred when you're a small developer and, and, and you know chasing revenue um, in other countries you have different processes and, and it can go much faster uh, but here is, is probably one of the biggest biggest sort of obstacles to quickly roll out renewable energy in, in, in any country in the world, also in Sweden, this is the long lead time it takes to get to consent and the high risk of the project developers uh, role of you know waiting five, seven, ten years to get to, to commissioning. So I think that's it's been recognized by say most governments, but very few has done, in my view, enough to, to lower or enhance the speed on how you can get to, to product initiation to, to final consent. Yeah, I've seen some interest, more interest recently in accelerating the permitting process for hydropower um, in the US. So maybe it will wash over into the marine side of things as well, who knows? We've and also seen that in the offshore wind space. They're trying mm -hmm. very hard to mm -hmm. accelerate that. And I would assume that that would then translate into tidal and waves. So I, I think offshore wind's probably getting the, the blunt of it right now because everybody under the sun is trying to get gigawatts built within the next 10 years. And they're just looking at the, the reality of the permitting process itself and saying, <laughs> if we don't change this, we don't, we don't get what we want. Um, and so I, I can say from the United States side, that's certainly what's happening. I know parts of the EU are looking at it as well. I don't know how that's advancing, but uh, I think the uh, what we're seeing 
at least from the extreme increase in desire over the last three years in offshore wind globally is going to open up doors dramatically for all of these other tangential renewable sources, um, particularly from the regulatory side. And then hopefully, you know, particularly in like Bedrock's case, there will be readily available maps of all of these things and all of these lease areas, or at least that's the goal. Um, and so being able to have all of that already done, already set in place, um, takes a huge burden and reduces a ton of the bottlenecks that I think anybody would have to go through to deploy any sort of infrastructure, renewable energy, uh, a hydrogen plant. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things they're looking at uh, deploying out um, just, you know, 10 to 20 kilometers offshore. Yeah, I was just going to um, compliment that. Yeah, in California, they just auctioned off uh, Boehm, auctioned off um, two larger lease areas for offshore wind in Northern and Central California. And so I think they're working on accelerating the permitting process now that the leases are sold and, you know, people want to start developing projects um, so that's being acknowledged. And yeah, as you pointed out there, there could also be opportunities where you don't have to go the utility scale farm, similar to offshore wind level, but deploy alongside existing assets. There are platforms out there. Yeah, we've heard um, hydrogen production. Some of them have dedicated pipelines that could send ammonia or uh, hydrogen back um, or even behind the meter with corporate PPAs with, let's say, food producers, coastal communities, um, islands um, that yeah, um, don't have to build a large 50, 100 megawatt level farm, but can still be um, attractive uh, decarbonization targets there. Anthony, Maybe I also... I could... Oh, sorry. I just wanted to flag Anthony that we also released um, a marine energy like potential study in March in partnership with NREL and PNNL and um, I think Sandia. So there's a lot of government tools also to help assess where these projects might be best located. I was going to change gears just a little bit away from the uh, sort of government and regulatory side and ask about the cost side of the equation. Um, and I was wondering if you all could talk a little bit about where are we now with the cost? I mean, maybe the first thing to say is like, how do you measure cost? Where are we at today with the cost and how does that compare with, um, where do we need to be for, for, for early customers and then also for, for scaling up? And then the second part to that question, which I think will be really interesting from this group in particular, you know, there are a lot of reports out there that has, have like cost curve projections, but you all know very concretely, you have detailed sort of bottom up um, techno-economic models. What, what are the opportunities to bring down the cost? How does that happen in practice? Yeah, I mean, for, for us, we, we've been doing quite a lot of studies with different uh, partners to really understand the value. So we like to, and I think that is, is picking up more and more. It's like, okay, we've been focusing on LCOE. It's been really good with the different uh, CFD auctions or feeding tariffs and competitions to bring down the LCOE of, of solar and wind. Whereas now we're seeing that there's a need to focus on the levelized value of electricity, meaning what, what's the value to the market? Um, and you have something called capture price, which is, well, what's the value? And, and what we're seeing in, in most countries in Europe with fairly high penetration of wind is that wave has about twice the capture price of, of wind. So we did a big study last year with one of the big uh, consultancy companies who came to the conclusion that at you know, 70 euros compared